I'm Bobby Smith, and I'm going to be your Torah teacher this morning at 10 o'clock. And um, I've uh, chosen to, even though we're in, in a holiday season, and you get a, um, appropriately holiday teachings this time of year, and I will be teaching next week, and I'll be teaching on Sukkot next week. But um, this week I'm going to do the Torah portions, the last two Torah portions. And the reason for that is, is I've been doing Torah study for a long time, and it seems like when we get to the end of the Torah study with the festivals going on and all the things that are, that are going on this time of year, we kind of overlook these two um, ending Torah portions and don't really give them justice and, and, um, and study them in depth. Uh, and there's a lot of, of God's wisdom in, in these Torah portions. So I think it's important for us to, to look at that and to, um, and to gain knowledge for, from it. So before we begin, as we should always begin, let me begin with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this glorious Shabbat day, for the ability to come to your house on your day and draw nearer to you, to worship you, my Father. Father, may the words today be your words and the teaching be your teaching. And may you touch each of us in your own way that we would gain what you would have us to gain from this that we should, can and should apply to our daily lives. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, Hazinu. Uh, Hazinu is um, Hebrew for give ear. That's what that's the um, that's the meaning of this week's Torah portion. And Hazinu's this week, Vahot um, Barakah is or Vazot Barakah is the uh, is next week's. So I'm going to do both of them this week. Um, actually, the the one for next week is typically done on um, Simchat Torah because it's a Torah portion that leads into the, uh, the new Torah cycle that's coming up. You know, um, when you get married, you get married and you, and you get a ring, you know, and the, the circle of the ring um, symbolizes infinity. You know, there's no beginning and no end. When we have our um, Torah walks, we always do our Torah walks in a figure eight. Uh, there is no end, you know, no beginning or no end. There's a, 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 infinity. So um, that's the way our Torah cycles are. The Torah cycles give us God's word on an annual basis, but it never stops. It keeps going. So, um, so that's, the, the, uh, that's the beauty of the way the Torah portions each year end and begin again. So, um, but back to Hazunu. Uh, I should always credit the folks that I research because I... Um, um, a lot of the words that, that, I, that I use aren't mine. I, do, I, I utilize Daniel Lancaster a lot. He, he, um, he authored Torah Clubs 1, 3, and 5 for this week's material that I, would have used, that I used. Uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Enoch Feinberg in his uh, book Walk, with, Walk Deuteronomy. Um, I drew a lot from him and also from the Art Scroll Kamash, or Hamash, the Stone Edition. So just want to give credit where credit's due. This Torah portion is only a single chapter, and the majority of it consists of what we call the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is a prophetic oracle 
warning Israel about apostasy to come and the resulting wrath of God because of that apostasy. The song looks far into the future, even envisioning the messianic advent amid rich and frightening catastrophic imagery. After the conclusion of the song, Moses is told to ascend Mount Nebo and overlook the promised land before he dies. Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 43, consists of an ancient poem composed by Moses himself at the command of God. The Lord told Moses to write a song as a witness against Israel. He said in Deuteronomy 31:19, write it, teach it, and put it on their lips. Moses wrote, wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. It was the same day on which Moses finished composing the scroll of the Torah, and it was also the same day that he died. Um, should have already done the Song of Moses, but uh, the sages included the Song of Moses among the great prophetic songs of Israel. The Song of Moses numbers the fourth position among these ten songs. The song presents itself as a lawsuit God lodges against his people. The Song of Moses was to be a witness against the future apostate generations of the nation. When the nation suffers under the Lord's rebuke, they are to recall the words of the Song of Moses and realize their era. So these are the ten songs that I um, was able to um, research. These are the ten, ten shirot of the, uh, the, the Bible, basically. The, the ten, ten shirot is, is, is the Hebrew word for song or poem. And uh, you can see that, that the first one was uh, the song of the Sabbath. Very, very important. And you also see that the tenth one's got some question marks. Well, the tenth song has not been sung yet. The tenth song is the song of Mashiach. And it is yet to be sung. But it will be sung. And what we do each year when we um, rehearse these appointed times of the Lord is we are looking forward to that song of Mashiach. The song of Moses, the song of which Moses spoke in the previous chapter, in it Moses called heaven and earth to bear witness to the calamities that be, will befall Israel and its sins and the ultimate joy that will become with the final redemption. Throughout the history of Israel, from the beginning of the Exodus even, until present day, Israel has gone through this pattern of falling away from the Lord. And every time they did that, they suffered the um, calamities of that, the curses of that. So this song is to be recalled to bring them back. And, and Moses, God who gave Moses the song, knew this would be the case. Since the nature of the song is to express recognition of the total harmony of creation, it often mixes past, present, and future. For everything is revealed to the prophet as a total reality in which there is no conflict, and in which future and past events 
are not only in harmony, but clarify one another. Thus, everything is melded as if it were happening at the same time. On the same day on which Moses finished composing his the scroll of Torah, on the same day he was to, to die, he wrote a song. In addition to the written Torah, Moses was to leave behind this prophetic song, an oracle that would help future generations find their way back to Torah. You know, we learn that the Levites were given the task of teaching the Torah to the people. And when they entered the land under Joshua, Joshua set up the, the, the land that way, just as, as, just as the Lord had um, instructed. And throughout their early history in the land, the Levites did a great job of doing that, of teaching the Torah. Today, we get the Torah at the synagogue. That's where, that's where we come each week to learn the Torah, you know. So this is how we carry on the word of God today because the Levites aren't doing that anymore. Well, I mean, I'm sure there are some that are, but this is, this is our role. So Terry and, and uh, Cheryl and myself get the honor of doing this each, each and every week. Each Torah portion is broken down into seven sections. Um, there's seven in, in the synagogue, and this dates back to Ezra, when the second temple was, um, put, was constructed and put back into practice. Ezra had the task of, uh, of organizing the nation that had been in apostasy and bringing them back to Torah. So this, this lives on even today in, in um, traditional Jewish synagogues where you have seven Torah readers. Here at Beth Adonai, we have one Torah reader. And that one Torah reader will pick their different um, Bible verses and then give an aliyah on those Bible verses. Back in the day, this is the way it was done. I actually had another slide that was kind of cute the way this thing uh, formatted it for me. But um, the seventh reader would read the seventh reading, which would, which would be the Meftir reading. And then once they read the Meftir reading, they would read the Haftorah reading. And they would then sit down and teach. And we, we, we actually got a story of Yeshua doing that in Matthew. This week's seven Torah readings are broken down like this. In the first section, they call the witness. God states his case against his people. In the second section, which is Deuteronomy 32.7, they recall mighty acts of them that oversee his creation. They recall God's mighty acts. God redeems his slaves and he's elevated. In the third section, and this is all in the Song of Moses, chapter 32, 13, prosperity problems. Yushiran, which is the, the Hebrew word for upright, grows fat and then gross. They spurn God to serve new gods your fathers never knew. In the fourth part of the, uh, this week, it's 3219, God is provoked. He's angered and disgusted, and, in, and so he hides his face, and he withdraws his protection. In the fifth section, which, which is uh, 3229, there's no discernment. Everybody, everyone lacks wisdom. In the sixth section, it's, uh, it's, it's about vindication, which is in um, 3240 through 41. God imposes his justice repaying the nations measure for measure. He uses the nations to punish his people and then repays them for punishing his people. 
The seventh one is the transmission of the song. In that particular part of the Torah, Moses teaches Israel the song and Israel learns the song. And the Meftir section is entitled by Rabbi Feinberg as See From Afar because it's there where Moses can, is taken up and is shown the land, but he can't grasp the land. He's not going to be allowed to enter the land. Daniel Lancaster does a good job of um, summarizing the song of Moses in six different uh, um, categories, and I won't read them all, but that, that's very similar to the way Rabbi Feinberg's categorized the Torah portion. So the, um, the fourth one of this is this complaint of apostasy. Now a lot of y'all may know what that word means, and I know what that word means, but I have to, you know, sometimes I have to look things up. So I did uh, want to look up the word apostasy to understand it fully and understand it clearly. It's the abandonment of the belief in God, basically falling away from God or rejecting God. That's, the, that's, what, that word, that's what that word means. So let's get into the meat of this. Deuteronomy 32.1. In last week's reading, Moses called on heaven and earth to serve as witnesses of the covenant between God and Israel. There's always witnesses in a court of law, and they're in, a, in a Torah court of law, and there's always two witnesses. So Moses is calling on heaven and earth to serve as witnesses. At the beginning of the Song of Moses, he invokes those two witnesses. According to the Torah, every matter must be established by two witnesses. Moses chose heaven and earth as witnesses to the covenant because they endure throughout all the generations. According to the Torah, the witnesses against the witnesses against the accused in a court of law are supposed to carry out the punishment. Heaven and earth fill this role as well. Moses had promised Israel that if they walked in obedience to the Torah, the heavens would bestow abundant rain and the earth its harvest. But if they forsake, forsake the covenant, the heavens would withhold the rain and the land would dry up. In Deuteronomy 32.2, Moses prayed that his teaching would be to Israel like rain and dew, which water the grass and the vegetation. He compared the people of Israel to the grass and the Torah that he had taught to them as life-giving water. We need to be watered daily with the teaching of God's word, not just weekly. If you don't get it daily, it's hard. I mean, you, you fall away. Consider the story of the foolish gardener. In the spring, he planted some seeds and he watered them. He was pleased when they began to grow, and he assumed that they could simply wait to be harvested or harvested. He did not think to water the young plants again. After all, I've already watered them, he said to himself. The plants shriveled up and died. Many believers behave like this foolish gardener. They espouse faith in Messiah and find relationship with God, but they do not nurture their, that faith and the relationship by regularly watering it with the study of the word. To live successful lives of faith, we need to drink from the water of the Bible on a regularly, daily basis. The Torah of Moses is like dew and rain that waters our souls and enables us to grow in spiritual maturity. Moses introduces two parties on the one hand, he introduced God as the rock, 
perfect, just, true, righteous, and upright. On the other hand, he presented Israel, corrupt, blemished, perverse, and crooked, foolish and unwise people, he said in 32.6. The Talmud understands the act of reading the name of the Lord to be the study of Torah. Therefore, the Talmud quotes Deuteronomy 32.3 to prove that a person should ascribe greatness to God by praying a blessing of thanksgiving every day before engaging in the study of Torah. It's one of the secrets of prayer is to give thanks for everything, the littlest of things, because everything comes from God. Based on this interpretation, tradi traditional Judaism prescribes that the following short prayer be said each day before the reading or studying of Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to occupy ourselves with the words of the Torah. Please, O Lord our God, make the words of your Torah sweet in our mouths and in the mouths of your entire people, the house of Israel. As, and we, our descendants, and the descendants of your people, the house of Israel, may we, all be, may we all be those who know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. The blessing declares that the inheritance of the Torah belongs to God's entire people, the house of Israel. It reminds us that the study of Torah is not just for our own sake, but for our children and our grandchildren. It states that the goal of the Torah study is not knowledge, just knowledge, rather we study Torah to grow in our relationship with God. As it says, may all those, may all be those who know your name. May we all be those who know your name. I couldn't get that out. The blessings says, we should not study Torah for the sake of earning a reward. Rather, we should study simply for its own sake. Because Torah is worthy of being studied. Finally, the blessing reminds us that the Torah is God's teaching to his people, Israel. The Song of Moses is intended primarily for the generation in which God's judgment was destined to fall. Moses wanted Israel to learn the song and pass it on to subsequent generations so that when the bitter curses of rebuke befell Israel, the people would hear the song of Moses and recognize their own predicament. They would recognize that their wickedness and rebellion had brought them to their current state. They would realize that they were a perverse and crooked generation. And that was what the song was warning about. It also gave them the way out of that if they would just listen. Moses relates how God chose Israel as his own people. Though the children of Adam separated into many nations and peoples, God took Israel as his personal inheritance among humanity. He cared for the nation like an eagle cares for its young. He rescued them, he instructed them, he nurtured them, he carried them, and he provided for them. Moses describes the exodus from Egypt as a rescue from the howling wasteland. God rescued Israel on eagles' wings. God alone led the people through the wilderness to the promised land. As a young child thinks his father is very wise, when the child grows into a teenager, he thinks his father is foolish. But when he becomes a man, he realizes that dad isn't foolish at all. 
Speaking to a future generation of apostate Israelites, Moses instructed them to inquire about the nation's early years. He prophetically knew that the children of Israel would one day forget the Torah and the story of their origin. When a people are godly, the younger generation learns from the older generation, and they in turn pass the Torah and knowledge of God on to the next generation. When the people are ungodly, the young generation is disconnected from the previous generations. Believing Jews or believers have the responsibility to bring all the Jewish people back to the ways of their elders and fathers. Messianic Judaism has the duty of introducing today's Jewish people to Yeshua and showing them the way back to covenant faithfulness through him. The Song of Moses describes Israel's 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. It says that God found the children of Israel lost and vulnerable in a vulnerable in a thir thirsty, desolate land. Speaking of thirsty, you know, it, it, when you talk a lot, you, you get dry, which I really feel for you guys during the uh, uh, Yom Kippur when you're having to do, you know, the liturgy. God encircled Israel with concern. He nurtured them. He guarded them like the pupil of his eye. The King James Version translates pupil, Ashan, as apple. From this translation, we have this common idiom, apple of my eye, which has entered the English language. In Psalm 17.8, King David prayed, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. In the Song of Moses, God is compared to an eagle that hovers over its young. In Jewish expression, a person who converts to Judaism is referred to as one who has taken shelter under the wings of the divine presence, the Shekinah. The same should be said of believers in Yeshua. When a person comes to the faith in Yeshua, he is brought into the nest under the protection of the wings of God. Yeshuan, which is uh, this Hebrew word, it comes from the root Hebrew word yashar, which means upright. The people of God are to be morally upright and straight before the Lord. The word yeshuran occurs only four times in the Hebrew scriptures, and three times in Deuteronomy, and once in Isaiah. In the Song of Moses, however, the term yerushuran is used sarcastically to describe the apostate Israel that was once upright, but is, that is no longer so. Moses used the name Yeshurun to contrast Israel's great spiritual potential with their fallen condition. Prosperity places a great obstacle between us and God, more so than poverty does. The poor man looks to God for help continually, and he conducts himself in humility. The prosperous man finds it easy to forget about God. Perhaps this is why Yeshua teaches us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, in Matthew 5, 3. Which is to say, blessed are those who have the humble attitude of a poor man. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to lose weight, but how easy it is to put it on? I'm going through that. Spirituality and godliness are not easier di disciplines to master than weight loss. Improvement and maintenance 
in our spiritual lives requires daily effort and commitment. Backsliding requires no effort at all. The moment we stop moving forward in our walk with God, the flesh begins to pull us backward. This can be compared to a swimmer who is swimming upstream. It took effort, but so long as he continued to swim, he made steady progress. When he stopped to rest by floating in the water, though, he immediately began to drift downstream. In only a short time, all his progress was lost. To stay spiritually in shape, we need to press on every day. If we do, we will be upright, worthy of the name Yeshurun. If we are spiritually lazy, though, and allow the flesh to rule us, we will quickly become like the flat, flabby Yeshurun described in Deuteronomy 32. Moses predicted that under the influence of prosperity and materialism, the people of Israel would grow spiritually apathetic to the point that they scorned the rock or the Lord. What does that mean to scorn the rock? To scorn the rock? In the Song of Moses, rock is a title for God. In today's postmodern, post-enlightened world, most people do not feel that they've sinned against God because they barely even believe in God. They do not believe that their deeds are sinful. We have scorned the rock, neglected the rock, and forgotten the rock. Yet the rock remains, and he will not be ignored forever. One day, all those who said there is no rock will see the rock with their own eyes. Moses describes God's reaction to Israel's apostasy as an anger that burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains in Deuteronomy 32.22. He will bring a foreign nation against them, those who are not a people, a foolish nation, to punish them. He will personally unleash disasters and curses upon Israel, spending his arrows on them and dashing them to the ground. With these words, Moses foresaw the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and ultimately the Romans. And we could even add to that the Germans. The Song of Moses depicts these invasions, but Israel is not utterly destroyed, lest the Lord's enemies gloat. The Almighty will eventually avenge his people and recompense their enemies for their evil. When Israel is utterly defeated, he will have compassion on her and restore her. In the Song of Moses, Israel is warned that if they turn to idols and reject the Lord, God's anger against them will be great. Nobody wants to think of God as angry. We prefer to meditate on his attributes of patience, mercy, grace, and kindness. God's anger is not like human anger. We should never imagine God as flying into a fit of rage or having a temper tantrum. His emotions are not like ours. His anger is never inspired by selfish concerns or the results of an affront to his dignity. Instead, his anger arises from his absolute justice. God's anger is his justice in action. According to the Song of Moses, that just anger extends even into the depths of the Sheol, the place of the dead. In other words, death provides no escape from the wrath of God. The Song of Moses speaks of God pouring out his wrath in two directions. On the one hand, he will punish Israel for the sins of apostasy and idolatry. On the other hand, he will avenge his people by punishing the foreign nations that vex Israel. The wrath of God is not, is not released immediately 
He patiently waits for the day of retribution when he will administer justice. Until then, his wrath remains laid up in store and sealed up in his treasuries. Vengeance against Israel's enemies is not instantaneous, but we may be certain that God's justice will one day be revealed, whether in this lifetime or in the world to come. The song ends with Israel's restoration. The Song of Moses goes on to describe the incredible reversal that will occur at the time of the final redemption when God comes to the defense of his people. Although the Song of Moses testifies against Israel, it is also a beacon of hope for the nation in exile. In the dark years of chastisement and exile, the community of Israel looks to the words of this song and sees that there is yet a happy ending to come. The majority of the Song of Moses speaks about the Lord's wrath on Israel and upon the nations. He pours out his wrath upon Israel because of her apostasy, upon the nations because of their mistreatment of Israel. At times the song becomes ambiguous and the reader feels uncertain of whether it speaks of Israel or the nations that harried her. The song depicts God at war, toppling the false gods set up against him, now chastising his people, now avenging them, spending his arrows, slaking his arrows with blood, sharpening his sword, and saturating it with flesh. In his climactic drama, God directly intervenes in human events and calls the nations to account. The book of Revelation in chapter 15, 2 through 3, refers to the song of Moses as the song of the lamb. One would not ordinarily associate the gentle, lamb-like aspect of Messiah with the fierce and violent energy of the song of Moses. But in Revelation, the lamb is a lion. Messiah is the agent of this final redemption. Here is the perseverance, perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Yeshua. In um, my Torah class this past year, we've been studying the uh, apostolic scriptures. And we've studied a lot of Paul. And Paul's message and teaching includes the Gentile, the Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven through, the faith in, through their faith in Yeshua without requiring them to become Jewish. Even Jewish believers rejected Paul's interpretation of the gospel. Many felt that Paul had stepped out of bounds when he opened the door of Gentile inclusion. According to his opponents, non-Jews could have full participation in the kingdom only after undergoing the prescribed conversion of ritual circumcision, immersion, and sacrifice. When Paul argued for this interpretation, he did not rely merely upon special revelation to defend his position. He needed to base the doctrine of Gentile inclusion on firmer ground than just visions and dreams. After all, he warns us to disregard those who base their, their teachings on visions and special revelations. Instead, Paul needed to find biblical justification for his gospel within the Hebrew scriptures. He found ample justification for his position in the Torah, particularly in the stories of Abraham. No doubt he also found evidence he sought in the Torah's laws regarding the strangers within Israel. In the prophets, he found plenty of adequate testimony that spoke of Messiah and the nations. Through careful study of the scriptures, Paul concluded that his gospel of Gentile inclusion 
had a solid scriptural basis. Though it may have been taken as a revelation from heaven to open his eyes to the mystery initially, he now found it throughout the scriptures. If you study Paul, just like Yeshua, when Yeshua came back um, from, to life from being put to death at his, uh, you know, when he was sacrificed, Yeshua spent 40 days with the disciples. That we, don't, we, we just know he spent the 40 days. During that time, we can infer that he taught the disciples. How would they have been so effective and so knowledgeable and being able to, along with the Holy Spirit, he gave them the Holy Spirit, but he, he, he taught them. Paul went after his scales were removed and after his road to Damascus experience, and he had three days, or it's, it's actually more like a year, that he was actually taught as well. So these, God prepares. He, he prepares his teachers. Paul includes two passages from the Song of Moses in his efforts to verify Gentile inclusion. Both appear in the Epistle of Romans 10.19 and 15.10, one of which is included in our Brit Hadashah readings, which is on this Shabbat. So let me uh, shift gears because I was going to do two Torah portions. That's the, uh, the gist of Hazinu, Ha'azinu. The other Torah portion is... Um, uh -oh. There we go. Vezaha Baraka. Vezot Ha Braka. Sorry about that. Need to work on my Hebrew. All right. Um, this Torah portion is normally read on the day of Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing of the Torah. And it's in conjunction with the beginning of the book of Genesis to mark the conclusion of one year's Torah cycle and the beginning of the next. This portion contains Moses' final blessings over the 12 tribes, the story of his ascent up Mount Nebo to overlook the land of Canaan, and the story of his death and burial. So, as with the other Torah portions, this Torah portion is also given seven readers. All Torah portions are given seven readers. Those of you that have a Jew complete Jewish Bible, you can see this. It, it, it illustrates it better than any other Bible that I've come across. I don't know that any other Bible even does it. But it's got little Roman numerals in each Torah portion showing you where each of the readers would, would have read. And it also has a little section that shows you where the Maftir reading starts. This one also did a little, uh-oh. I just lost my, th oh, here it is. But it did a little design thing for me. This thing isn't working today for some periods. Um, this Torah portion, however, when it gets to the sixth reader, has a little different thing going on, because this is the last Torah portion, and as we talked about, we're, we're transitioning into the first Torah portion, into Bereshit. So the sixth Torah portion reader would read what's known as the Katan Torah. The sixth read of the Torah on this day is special. They read on Simchat Torah. This section includes a portion, a book, and a Pentiach. In conservative Jewish congregations, wives accompany their husbands to read this particular segment. So the, the Aliyah reader would have their wives um, 
a company of them, up to the Bema, and it's entitled the Katan Torah, which means bridegroom of the Torah. Sephardic congregations call a newly married couple to read both from this segment and the next segment. The Katan Torah, or the groom of Torah, is the end of the, to of the Torah offers all a chance to ascend and read from the scroll. The seventh reader of the Torah on this special day is called the Katan Bereshit, which is the bridegroom of the beginnings. The bridegroom of the, uh, the, the that reading would be Genesis 1-1, and that's basically new beginnings that bring new solutions to old problems. The Meftir reading of that day would be Numbers 29-35-36. They go back into the Torah which symbols fulfilling all of the Torah. It's really a time for those who most love God. Deuteronomy 33.1 In our year-long study through the Torah, we've unrolled the scroll, as Daniel Lancaster says, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy. We've learned the things that have taken place from the beginning, the blessing, we have discovered in the Torah is the blessing of faith itself. It is the pursuit of God, covenant relationship with him, and the joy of the Messiah. On the last day of his life, Moses completed the writing of the Torah. He taught the song of Moses to the children of Israel. Then he blessed each of the tribes before ascending Mount Nebo and facing his death. He blessed the tribes just as Jacob had blessed the tribes in his final day. The blessing that Moses left behind is the Torah, the revelation of God, and the source of his message to us. There are 13 fundamentals of Judaism that were uh, put forth by Maimonides, which is uh, Rambam. Actually, um, I wanted to do a picture of him. And basically, this, this is the principles of the Jewish faith. Okay? And I won't read all these because we're running out of time. But I do want to uh, um, read the last two, 12 and 13. Now, Mohammedes was not a believer in Yeshua. But he is a believer in Messiah. I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah... And even though he may delay, nevertheless, I anticipate every day that he will come. Thirteen, I believe with complete faith that there will be resurrection of the dead. He's got it, resuscitation of the dead. Resus, resus, I can't even say the word, so I'm going to go with resurrection. Whenever the wish emanates from the creator, blessed is his name, exalted is his mention forever and for all eternity. So, that resurrection is a Jewish concept. The story of the Bible is all, it all is tied together. Messiah is all tied together, you know. It all builds upon itself to a, to a completion. At Mount Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments. According, he gave the whole Torah in addition to the Ten Commandments. According to Jewish reckoning, the first commandment is, or was, I am the Lord your God. The commandment to believe in God. Similarly, the first foundation of Jewish belief that Rambam exposed was the, was the belief in God as the trans, transcendent creator of all things. The sages of the Talmudic era understood Deuteronomy 33.2, 2, 
primarily as a reference to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. This led them to wonder why Moses explicitly mentioned Mount Seir, which belonged to the Edomites, and Mount Paran, which belonged to the Ishmaelites, in connection with the giving of the Torah. One passage in the Talmud offers a creative explanation. Now, that word creative is what you need to take, pay attention to here. According to the Talmud's interpretation, just as God offered the Torah to Israel at Mount Sinai, he also offered it to the other nations at a significant mountains, to the Edomites at Mount Sur and the Ishmaelites at Mount Paran and so forth. But unlike the nation of Israel, the other nations did not find the terms of the Torah acceptable and they refused to agree to God's laws. I don't know if I believe that or not, but that's what uh, the Talmud says. The Talmud speculates that the nations will say to God, if you have given the Torah to us, we would have observed it. But God will reply that he did offer it to them, and they refused. I do believe in that, because God has offered the Torah to everybody, and it's out here for anybody to see, for sure. The nations will answer, but now we will keep the Torah. And God will reply to them, If a man does not prepare food to eat before the Shabbat begins, what will he eat on the Sabbath day? In other words, the Talmud likens the Messianic era to the Sabbath. Those who keep the Torah voluntarily prior to the coming of Messiah can be likened to a man preparing his meals before the Sabbath day, a day on which food preparation is not permitted. The man who does not keep the Torah prior to the coming of Messiah is compared to a man who does not prepare his food for the Sabbath day. When the Sabbath arrives, he has nothing to eat. So too, the Messianic era arrives. Those who have lived their lives in obedience to God's commandments will receive the reward. Those who have not will not. Now, what it doesn't say there is those who believe in Messiah. You're covered by Messiah. Belief in Messiah is, 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 um, is an extremely important part of that. As Rambam presented his 13 foundations of the Jewish faith, his 8th and ninth principles concerned the Torah given through Moses. He made it clear that although the Torah came from the hand of Moses, it was actually spoken directly by God. Moses was only the transmitter of words, not the author of them. Every word of the Torah is, uh, is of divine origin. Moses prefaced the blessings over the tribes by reminding Israel of the profound love their God had for them. He also confirmed his love to them by reminding them of his gift to them of the Torah, supernaturally attested to and witnessed. We spoke in last, the last Torah portion of Yeshuran means upright one, and Moses uses the word as a term of endearment for Israel. The people of God are to be morally upright and straight before the Lord. Yusharan is also a poetic name of Israel. The God of Yusharan. At the conclusion of the blessings of the tribes, Moses declares, there is none like the God of Yusharan. He speaks of the greatness and splendor of the Holy One as he rides the heavens and traverses the skies in his majesty. In these words, Moses reminds us that God is completely transcendent, inspiring awe and fear. Yet despite God's unfathomable greatness, he condenses, he condescends to come and aid his people. As Moses concluded his blessings over Israel, he told them, the eternal God is a dwelling place. He wanted to encourage Israel to think of God as a place of safety, 
on which they could always rely. The fourth fundamental principle of faith Rambam exposed was that God not only pre-existed the universe, but he himself is without beginning. He is God over eternity. As Moses came to the end of his ministry, and did indeed to the end of his life, he encouraged Israel to rely on the everlasting arms or strength of God. After blessing the tribes of Israel, Moses ascended Mount Nebo. Moses overlooked the land of Canaan. That glimpse of Israel was as much of the promised land as Moses was allowed to enjoy. After he saw the land, Moses died, and God buried him in the valley of the land of Moab. It says that in Deuteronomy 34.6. The same God who buried Moses in the land of Moab one day will awaken him. In the future yet to come, Moses will finally cross the Jordan River and enter the land of Israel. This is a... Uh, I struggled to find some good pictures of Moses that didn't have Charlton Heston in them. <laughs> Moses is called the greatest prophet. You know, he... Um, it's not coincidence, but um, the Lord throughout time had a plan for his people. And his people were in bondage in Israel. I mean in Egypt, I'm sorry, in Egypt. And Moses just so happened to be born at a time when they were, they were killing the, the firstborns, was put into a river, and was brought out by Pharaoh's daughter, and just so happened to be raised in Pharaoh's house. Well, Egypt at the time was the most prosperous land, most developed country on earth. And he was educated in the leader of that country's home. For 40 years he lived, his first 40 years were, were, were in Egypt. So he, he, God has a plan. I mean, and he, 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 he carries it out. Moses was first and foremost, though, he was a prophet. A prophet is a spokesman for God. He or she is a unique individual given the divine gift of hearing directly from God and serving as a messenger for the Most High. If a person does not believe in prophecy, it is impossible to believe that the scriptures are given by God or that God communicates with human beings at all. Therefore, belief in the gift of prophecy is fundamental to our belief in the Bible. The seventh foundation of Jewish faith is the belief that Moses is unique among the prophets, the greatest of all the prophets. Rambam offers four proofs that Moses was the greatest of the prophets. First, he points out that Moses alone received his prophecies directly from the mouth of God. Second, he states that all the other prophets received their prophecies only in dreams or visions or in a trance-like state whereas Moses received prophecy simply by standing in the presence of the Lord. Third, Rambam gives examples of other prophets such as Daniel and Ezekiel suffering physically from the experience of prophesying, whereas Moses says, the Lord, whereas with Moses' scripture, the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. Fourth, all the other prophets received their prophecies only when God wanted to speak through them. A prophet might wait days, weeks, or years for a prophecy to come, and it may never come. Moses, on the other hand, could prophesy any time he wished. 
Rambam points out that Aaron was allowed in the Holy of Holies only once a year, but Moses could enter any time he wanted. He entered the Holy of Holies boldly to speak with his, you know, they said his friend, and he is his friend, but he's also almost like his boss, you know, but he could speak with him any time he wanted. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. Rambam teaches that no prophet will ever arise as great as Moses. But earlier in Deuteronomy, Moses himself contradicts this. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among your own people like myself. Him you shall heed. Moses was speaking of a single prophet whom God would raise up in the future. And that prophet is the Messiah. The apostles understood the prophecy of the prophet like Moses to refer to Yeshua. Believers in Yeshua affirm that the one has come who surpassed even Moses. Moses died on Mount Nebo. God buried him. The sun set, the dusk faded, and the stars above the mountains of Moab filled the sky. The view from earth that night revealed a glimmering canopy of a billion light points, or right points of light spread across heaven. The view from heaven revealed the host of Israel, unaccountable as the stars assembled below. Prior to the revelation through Moses, human beings might have deduced, you know, sort of felt, the existence of a creator, but our knowledge of that creator would be limited to inferences or from observations. Moses introduced God to the world. The Lord disclosed himself to his creation through Moses. When God revealed himself to mankind through the revelation of his Torah, it was as if he declared, allow me to introduce myself. I'm God, your creator. The revelation of God is called the glory of God. To glorify God means to accurately reveal God's true person. For example, Moses said to God, show me your glory. He meant, Show me who you really are. Reveal yourself to me. The Torah is a book of glory, a revelation of who God is. It is the foundation of Scripture. Foundation is a um, heavily used word, but it's so important because without a foundation, there's no underpinnings. There's nothing to hold it up. When we receive an insight about God or see an accurate depiction of God's person, we perceive a little bit of his glory. The prophets call this type of divine revelation the knowledge of the Lord. The revelation of the glory of God, which is also called the knowledge of the Lord, thematically unties the, or unifies the whole Torah and the whole Bible. It ties all the storied, stories of the Bible together from Genesis all the way through history to the end of Revelation and back again. The Bible tells us the story of the glory of God. It is God's book. It's also 
the best-selling book in the world. We can sum up the whole Bible in five simple words. The Lord reveals his glory. These same five words describe the messianic era, a day in which the Almighty will pour out his spirit on all flesh so that even the least of the least will receive a revelation of God on par with the greatest of prophets in this current era. In that day, no man will need to teach his neighbor about God. No preacher, teacher, or rabbi will need to say, Know ye the Lord. They will all know him, from the least to the greatest, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It says so in Isaiah 11.9. It is the business of the dis disciple to live now for the realization of this messianic age and to look forward to it. And when we each year rehearse these festivals, these appointed times of God, these Moedim as they're called, we are getting a glimpse of what's going to happen, you know. So um, um, it's one of the beautiful things about what we do in Messianic Judaism and any faith that will uh, follow the Moedim of the Lord, recognize the Moedim of the Lord. So with that, I'm going to close, and um, I'm going to close with a prayer. Alvino Malkenu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you so much again for this wonderful day, for all of our um, congregation here at Beth Adonai, for, this, for Rabbi Scott and Judy and what they do for us each and every week to um, provide for us a place to come and worship on Shabbat. Thank you for, um, for life, Father, and for your word. Thank you for the foundation of the Torah and for understanding the foundation of the Torah and how it, without it, the rest of your scripture just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Give us the wisdom and the, the desire and the, the, um, the motivation just to, just to study your word and to learn your word and to, to use that to draw near to you and to live, live your glory, Father, to show your glory to others. May we have a great day this day. Protect us, watch over us, and love us. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.